Well, good morning. It is my privilege today to bring the word of God to this church. Uh, please turn with me to Philippians 4. We're at the end of Philippians 4. This is our last section in Philippians, verse 20 through 23. If you are able, please stand to honor the word of God. This is Philippians 4, 20 through 23. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You can be seated. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we pray that you speak to us this morning through it. We pray that continually we will be in your lear- word and learning from you. Amen. The terrible twos. Everyone's heard of them. Most have been there. And parents fear them. The crying, the screaming, the tantrums. God bless parents. Thank you so much. Uh, I do not yet have the privilege of calling myself a parent, but I have seen many of these people in terrible twos, and I myself have been there. And so I asked my mom, Mom, what was it like when I was in my terrible twos? And and she had one story in mind, and we're going to call this story the grocery store incident. So it was a normal day, and my mother and I were going to the grocery store. Little Eric is in front of the cart. We're passing all these colorful things on the aisles, and little Eric wants something that's in one of those aisles. So I point to it, and I say, I want that thing. Maybe it was ketchup. Maybe it was marshmallow fluff. I have no idea, but I wanted it. My mom realized that you did not need that thing. So she told me firmly, what did little two-year-old Eric do? Yeah, he cried, he had a tantrum, and everybody in the store started coming around seeing why this child was crying and being crazy. And they asked this child, how are you doing, what's wrong? And as if I hadn't embarrassed my mother enough, I pointed up to my mother and I said to her, you are not my mommy. So it was embarrassing to start. You know, my mother fed me. She clothed me. She loved me. And not only did I embarrass her, I may have very likely almost gotten her arrested. Uh, Christians are the children of God. And far too often, like little two-year-olds, we do not act like the family that we represent. So what should a Christian act like? What should a Christian do? Today in our verse... Our our four verses, we get a glimpse of how Christians should act because we are the people of God. And here's going to be the main point of our talk today. Because we are the people of God, we should give God glory, be a unified people, and continue in the grace of Jesus. And those are going to be our three points. Give God glory, be unified, and continue in grace. So the first point comes from our first verse. So let's look there together. The people of God should continue in the glory of their Father. 
verse 20 says this, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is calling the Philippian church to glorify God. And if we're to understand what that means, we've got to ask two questions. One, what does it mean to glorify God? And two, why in the world would we do so? Well, at first it it helps to understand what glorifying God is not. Because it can mean multiple things. And here in this verse, it does not mean giving glory or adding to God's glory in any way, shape, or form. God's glory is perfect. You don't take a, a pair of dirty socks and add it to a stack of perfectly pressed pants and shirts. It doesn't add to the situation. God's glory is perfect, so we're not adding to his glory when we're glorifying him. So what does it mean? Well, it simply means to praise and to worship God. All right, we got our definition. But now why in the world would we praise God? It's a funny question to ask, right? We're sitting here in church. We're doing that. We know we should praise God. The first reason we should praise God is because we were created in order to do so. If you've been in Presbyterian circles for a while or reform circles, you may have heard of the first question in the Shorter Catechism, which is this, what is the chief end of man? And who knows it? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Awesome. Good job, guys. Yeah, this is not just a Presbyterian belief. This is a Baptist belief, a Methodist belief, a Lutheran belief, and any denomination that is truly Christian understands that praising God is our purpose. In fact, they understand that because it comes from the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that whatever we are to do, we should do it for the glory of God. And Ephesians 1 verses 5 through 14 makes it clear That God's purpose in predestinating us, saving us, and even sealing us with the Holy Spirit is, quote, to the praise of his glory. So these verses show us that the entire life and purpose of us, if we are Christians, is to glorify God. A clock ticks. A ball rolls. Glue adheres and Christians praise because we were created to do so. So that's the first reason we glorify God, because we were created to do so. And then secondly, we glorify God because of what he has done and is continually doing in our lives. Throughout the Bible, we run into these sections called doxologies or words of praise. And they're all throughout the scriptures. And Paul loves them. And whenever Paul makes this great statement, very often you find a doxology or a word of praise about that statement to God. And that's what's going on here in verse 20. In fact, the the statement that he's made that he's praising God for is in verse 19. So if you got your Bible, look there. And it says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. Christ Jesus. So Paul is praising God because God continually cares for the church. We should praise God. How has God continually cared for you? 
More than our daily needs, God gives us salvation if we are in Christ. Notice in our verse that Paul calls God our Father. There's a personal relationship that Christians have with God. And earlier we saw a baptism of Ethan and an adoption was talked about. And that's a great truth for us Christians. Those who are in Christ are adopted. What does that mean? Well, Scripture tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it goes on further, which leads to an adoption in Christ as sons and daughters of God. So when we deserved death, we were not only given mercy, we were given a relationship with God. It's as if God came down to earth, and he came to death row. And he looked the murderer of his son in the eye. And he said, for the sake of my son, I not only forgive you, but you are now my child. So God brings Christians from death to life, from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom. How can we not praise our God for such a thing? So let's make this personal. Do we give God the glory he deserves? Do we do that with our words and with our actions? Now it's impossible for us to fully thank God for what he's done. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't praise him. Give God your imperfect worship. So our church is called to glorify God. But how can the church truly glorify our God if we are not unified? And that brings us to the second point of the text. The church of God is called to be a unified people. Look with me at verse 21 and 22. It says this, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, before we dive into talking about unity, there's a word that we need to understand here. And it's often confused, and that word is saint or saints. Now, unfortunately, at certain times in church history, and by certain traditions today, and maybe by some of us in this room, we misunderstand what this word saints means. Maybe we think it means the very, very good Christians. Uh, Some traditions even today pray to the saints for protection or for a better word with God. But church, veneration of the saints is far too close to worshiping men. So what's the Bible talking about when it says saints? Well, consistently when the Bible or Paul, uh, he uses it all the time, talks about saints, he's talking about the entire church of Christ. The Old Testament church was set apart to be a holy people. And we, the New Testament church, are set apart by the blood of Christ to be a holy people and a royal priesthood for God. Have you seen the decorum of a soldier? He acts a certain way because he's part of something bigger than himself. He's part of an army. Well, you and I, if we are in Christ are set apart, we are holy, and therefore we must act in a holy manner. 
And one of the ways that saints are called to act in a holy manner is to be unified. So that brings us back to our point. Now in these two verses, there's actually only one verb in the Greek, and it's used three times, and it's to greet. Uh, Paul is, seems to be obsessed with greeting in these verses. He, it's an imperative. Greet one another, right? He's telling them you must do this thing. And throughout all of Paul's letters, he seems to end in greetings. So what's so important with greeting one another? I don't think it's simply a normal way that people in that time ended letters. Sometimes they did. But I think it's a conscious effort by Paul to keep the church connected and to keep the church unified. So what's so important about unity? Well, the first reason we must be unified is because we represent God to the world. A few weeks ago, Ladd led us uh, in chapter 2 through a few verses. And some of the verses that he led us in uh, said this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And here's the kicker. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. The world is watching us. The world is looking to see if the church will put their money where their mouth is. If the Bible is true. If Jesus is the one way to salvation. If the Holy Spirit dwells in believers Why are we not more unified? So often, churches today argue over simple things. I have known of churches who have split over the color of walls uh, being decided in sanctuaries. So often we argue over small things. But the Bible calls us to be of one mind. Jesus gives a, a great analogy in Matthew 5 pertaining to Christian witness, and I think it really helps us in understanding our need for unity in the church. He says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Christians, let's not lose our saltiness by defacing our witness, by not being unified. Instead, keep our witness and point to Christ by acting as brothers and sisters. Now, our second point about why we should be unified really helps our first point, and it is this. Believers need to understand that they are equal with other Christians. So when we were talking about saints, we already said that there are no like, very, very good Christians that are on a different level. It's not like a video game. You're not leveling up in Christianity in order to be uh, like a level 10 Christian of sorts. That's not the point. Uh, instead, all Christians are equally part of the family of God. And we see that in these verses. Uh, Paul is making a point to greet people of different social standings. Let's look at this verse. Verse 21 says, Greet every saint 
in Christ Jesus. So Paul's asking the people of Philippi to greet one another. Uh, this, this includes people of different ages, the young, the previously uh, in college, the middle age, the silver sage. We're all to greet one another with the love of Christ. Further than that, Philippi was a Roman colony. And so you would have Roman citizens, which would be extra special people in the eyes of the masses. And then you would have normal Philippian people. And so there would be uh, people with different social standing within the same congregation. Paul's calling all of them to greet one another equally. Further, verse 21 goes on and it says, The brothers who are with me greet you. Now, brothers could be referring to other Christians who are at Rome, but because of the next section, I'm, I'm going to guess not. Instead, I think these brothers who are with Paul is kind of his inner circle. And we know some of these well. We know Timothy and Titus and Silas, who are continually talked about in the scriptures and letters are written to. And these would be superstar Christians in the mind of the Philippians, these brothers who are with Paul. Uh, they were the ones that Paul was grooming to be leaders in the church. And yet these superstar Christians of sorts are called to greet uh, these Philippian brothers as equals in Christ. Paul doesn't end there. He goes on, verse 22 says, All the saints greet you. Paul's in Rome, so probably all the Roman Christians are greeting the Philippian Christians. Now that would have big social status uh, connotations. Romans were the, in the center of the empire. But more than that, it's got two different locations of congregations coming together and greeting one another in this message. So different Local congregations and foreign congregations are having contact and keeping up with one another. Paul is seeking unity throughout the entire church. And at the risk of, of beating this too much, we're going to look at the next part that says, especially those of Caesar's household. And this is very cool. Caesar's household, it's not referring to uh, blood relatives of Caesar probably means like government workers or those who are working in, in high authority in the Roman council or Roman government. And so these of Caesar's household are even greeting the Philippians. Now that's amazing news. Uh, Rome, the government itself, is becoming Christian. They're on equal standing. So we're going to step back a second and see what we've seen in these two verses. We've seen that Paul is encouraging the entire church to greet one another regardless of age, social standing, location, government worker, whatever. We are equal in Christ. Now elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul uses an analogy of the body of Christ. And Adam, when he was leading us in scripture earlier, uh, read quite a bit from 1 Corinthians 12. And there it is made very clear that while there is one body, there are many members in Christ's church. And Paul specifically says this, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, 
nor the head to the foot. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. So all the parts of Christ's body are important, and all of them need to work in chorus to represent God to the world. So how are we doing? How are we doing at being unified and representing God to the world? Does the world look at Redeemer and say, that's a solid group of people who practice what they preach? Do our visitors and guests see the love of Christ as we greet them? Are we greeting and loving different congregations within our local community? Dare I say, of of different denominations. Are we coming alongside one another? Now, I've been very encouraged being part of Redeemer's staff this past year. And and I want to say it has been amazing to see the unity in this church. Uh, It has been amazing to see how without a lead pastor for a year, the church came together, the elders in the church stood up and practiced unity. And it was just an amazing thing to see. So great job, Church of Redeemer. Uh, You guys are unified in many ways. We are unified. And what we're calling, what the word is calling us to do is to continue to seek after that in whatever way possible. Continue to search for unity. So, so far we've seen that the church is called to praise God. And the church is called to be unified. And finally, we will see that the church is called to continue in the grace of God. So let's look at our final verse. Verse 23. Paul writes, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? First time I read that, I thought, all right, that's a great way to end a letter. And you know when one of your friends tells you, that was deep, man. That was a deep statement. That's what I was thinking when I read this, uh, this last verse. Uh, but I'm not sure I understood what it meant at first glance. Here's what I mean. There's, there's many types of grace. Uh, grace is undeserved love. And it saturates the scriptures. And throughout the scriptures, God talks about multiple kinds of grace. One type of grace is grace to the entire world. Uh, We see this in Matthew 5 as as, uh, Jesus says that he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Further than that, simply being created Being allowed to be part of this world is a grace in itself. But I don't think that's the grace that Paul's talking about in this final verse. Okay, so maybe Paul's talking about that ultimate grace of the justification of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's an amazing grace. And it's one that we should talk about often. But I think here, that's not what Paul is referring to because he's assuming he's talking to Christians already. May the grace be with you. Instead, it seems Paul is talking about the continual grace of Christ in the life of a Christian. And guys, this is great news. Great news for us. The work of the cross is amazing. But God doesn't just come to the cross and then 
leave us there. He continually lives in the life of Christians. Jesus rose and he is on the throne and there he acts as ruler now, governing the church. And further, he continues as shepherd now and he sent the Holy Spirit to guide and to keep us. This sustaining grace of Christ is what keeps Christians strong. What's, what helps embolden us to fight temptation. And what continues to help us grow into maturity. Now, I need to tell you guys that my wife and I do not have green thumbs. So sometimes plant analogies don't work on me. Uh, it, it could be said that we have a very hard time keeping plants alive. Uh, I, I might have let go of a cactus recently that was supposed to be impossible to kill. Um, but needless to say, it is hard to care for plants. It's something you've got to be constantly aware of, right? Well, the Bible often compares God to a gardener. And the church is his garden. And this continuing grace of Christ is like Christ pouring water on the church to help us grow into something beautiful. Not only does he pour this water, he helps us to be supported when storms are about to come so that the trauma of winds doesn't knock us down. Thank God for that continuing grace of Christ. How can we not praise God for this? So ask yourself, how do you see the continuing grace of Christ in your life? How is Christ sustaining you even now or even through hard times? How should we respond to this grace? We know this fantastic news, but how should we respond to this news? Well, our first response we've already talked about is praise to worship and thank God. And then our second response is that we should strive to grow and to continue in the grace of Christ. And this is where the plant analogy kind of breaks down. I wish I had uh, plants that could respond uh, maybe they'd tell me to water them or something. But unlike plants, uh, we, the church, can think. And we can respond to what happens. And we are called to respond and to strive. And so the question is this. Will the church avoid the water of Christ, the grace that is being poured upon us? Or will we embrace it? And will we strive along with Christ to be more like him. So Redeemer, instead of being children in our terrible twos, may we be children growing in the grace of Christ. May we be a church that praises God, that continues in unity and continues in grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God,